We are keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And women, don't forget about that. But that was Lyndon Johnson. That was back in the 60s. And you know, back then, marriage and family law used to be so simple. Oh, so sweet, so simple. Here here it was. Men ruled. Those days are gone. The law is recognizing that the definition of marriage and family has changed and is moving forward, certainly for the better. But with this new and far more expansive freedom and reality, many questions and sometimes difficult problems arise. In a democracy, we all have involvement in contracts, whether it's the social contracts cited by America's founders in which we all have responsibility as citizens or business contracts to one another, or a marriage. They're all contracts that affect our lives. And, of course, democracy means that we are citizens participating with one another and that we freely and consciously enter into contracts And, of course, there are expectations that we each live up to those chosen responsibilities. And there are laws which enforce these contracts. So in the new world of wider definitions of marriage and family contracts, there are a lot of questions. Uh, And as with all social agreements, there is the understood and the more problematic, not quite so understood And that's when things get complicated and sometimes difficult. And marriage is one of those many contracts to which we agree. The written is always clearer than the unwritten. But in family situations, many are reluctant to have such things as written contracts. You may know about this. Well, in her new book, Love's Promises, author Martha Ertman explores how deals and contracts create and transform all kinds of families. Love's Promises has been called a crucial step forward for the family equality movement that we have certainly begun. It's a path we are on, and it's a good one. The book disproves the commonly held assumption that contracts are often selfish, cold, and calculating, and provides a framework for couples grappling with how the law treats relationships and children. Martha Ertman is a law professor at the University of Maryland's Cary Law School with an extensive background in contract law, and she explains that A contract is legalese for an agreement that courts would enforce. More informal deals like I cook dinner and you wash the dishes, which sounds quite familiar to me, uh, so common in relationships are, of course, not legally binding. 
For Ertman, these formal and informal arrangements shape intimate relations because they create, quote, expectations of reciprocity and grounds for changing the relationships when one person isn't holding up his or her end of the deal, unquote. It can get messy, as we all know. And contracts exist to avoid mess, it seems to me. And uh, thanks very much, Martha Ertman, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, in this age of breaking out of the narrow, traditional structures of what makes a family with same-sex, LGBT parents, cohabitation, adoption, and diversity, the question of understood or misunderstood responsibility deserves a very careful look. And this book, Love's Promises, offers a map and a discussion of what new and possible contracts there may be. Martha, what, what, what was your purpose in writing this book? What, what was the uh, social need for such a book, Love's Promises? Well, thank you for asking. My, my purpose in writing this book is that I have been thinking and writing and teaching about contracts and specifically family agreements for 20 years. And sometimes a student will say after class, eyes kind of saucer wide, this is like gold. How can people not know this? And it's really true that there are very important provisions of the law that might surprise people. So what I did is I set out to write a book that distills the arguments that I've made in scholarly journals, but mm-hmm. does it for people who are not in law school, who have no interest, who are wise mm. enough to have no interest in going to law school, but are maybe living with somebody, or maybe thinking about adoption, or maybe thinking about uh, reproductive technology. All of the, the contracts are way more common than people think mm-hmm. and more friendly than people think. So these mm-hmm. are the main messages I, I want to get out, and so I, I wrote it in a way that I hope people will find friendly and even fun to read. Wow, friendly. Yeah, people, I think, are oftentimes like, ooh, a contract? Ooh, that's scary. And I, I see, I mean, all my life, you know, I see people about to get married, and they're all starstruck and everything. And oftentimes I, I have to wonder... Do they know what they're doing? I mean, do they know what's involved? And, you know, have they thought about what life is like going to be like for their kids and, and what could happen? I don't know. I mean, it, it's people just don't always think about it for sure. And, right. And I'm not sure it's always a good idea to make them think about it. Huh, that um, among scholars, there are family law scholars who think that when you go and sign up to get married, you should have to go through a, um, the equivalent of a driver's test so you really know what all the legal rights and obligations well, I've are. I've wondered about that, yeah. I'm not sure that that's right, because um, the main thing is connection. And we're all better off if we have good connections, if we show up to the grocery store and the classroom and um, the uh, backyard even, when we're getting along with our neighbors, we're all better off if we have connections. So I, I'm not entirely sure everybody needs to know all the dirty details, but I do think they need to be aware when it's masked and when it's un- and whether the masking is positive, then you can say, oh, it totally makes sense. Will you bring a glass of wine, you bring a bottle of wine to your friend's house when they invite you for dinner. It would be insulting to bring a $20 bill, even though it's your way of saying I'd like to contribute. So that masking is socially positive. Mm. What is 
Negative is the masking of moving in with somebody and pretending, oh, we're friendly now, so we'll always be friendly. So it's okay if one person pays the utilities for 20 years and then is out on the street with nothing other than the clothes on her back after 20 years. And I think that masking is dangerous. Yeah, interesting to... You want the connection there. You want the chemistry to be there. That's really at the basis of it. Oh, yeah, that's why I have memoir. If people get nothing else out of this book, my hope is the message that they get is that contracts are friendly. I was able to have a baby with a gay man, and 11 years into the game, we're all getting along. I have a wife now. He has a husband now. We were single at the time. Contracts and deals made it possible, but it also, it's the full heart that's the engine that runs it. And so what the contracts and deals can do is show respect and reciprocity, uh-huh. like the example you huh. gave of one doing the dishes and one cleaning up. Where it's Most of us would be happier to have company over dinner, but there's something we intuitively know. There's something out of whack. If one person buys the groceries, makes the dinner, cleans up, that's out of whack. And then later on can end up out in the street with nothing. That has happened for sure. You know, it's amazing to me how, you know, long there's been a a problem, discrimination. You know, it used to be illegal to simply be homosexual. I mean, the the inventor of the computer, Alan Turing, may have saved Western democracies from the Nazis, you know, not too small of an accomplishment, but he went to jail simply for being revealed as a homosexual. And I will recommend the movie Imitation Game. It's, it's a great movie. Of course, not very long ago, same-sex marriage was unthinkable. Of course, today in most states, and hopefully with the Supreme Court soon, it's going to be completely legal as a recognition of one's constitutional rights. But I, I've seen it uh, written that if your book were expressed in a bumper sticker, it might read, unusual doesn't equal illegal. You know, it has the equal sign with the slash through it. Unusual doesn't equal illegal. Tell us more about that. Well, I think you're exactly right. That Those old-fashioned rules that I'm old enough, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so I am old enough that when I started law school, the Supreme Court had just said the state of Georgia could make it a crime to be gay. So that was the cloud over my early legal training and and legal experience. And then only in 2003, the year before my son is born, Uh does the Supreme Court finally say states cannot make it a crime to be gay. And then, as you say, they whittle away. can't be a crime to be gay. Then we can serve in the military little by little. And now there's there's some same-sex marriage recognition, and the question is whether it'll be full throttle. And I think what the recognition is that family doesn't come in one size fits all. Absolutely. That it's really rare to have a shirt that fits everyone. And certainly <laughs> trousers are going to be amazingly hard to have one size fits all. How could it be that the most important relationships of our lives would be in a one fit all fits all format? Mm-hmm. So The central message of the book, in addition to contracts being friendly, is that the related point that love comes in different packages. And because love comes in different packages, we tailor our lives in different ways. So it's an old-fashioned look that says 
there's one natural right. way of being that may be dictated by God or dictated by biology, and everything else is unnatural. Right. In fact, I think there's a common way of being. And it is true. Most people are heterosexual. Most people are married. We talk about rising rates of cohabitation, and it is true. They've increased 1,000% since 1960. But as of the 2010 census, Bert, for every single household in the United States that was cohabiting, there were five married households. So marriage is still the most common game in town. For every single decade of the 20th century, Mm. about 90% of adult Americans had been married at some point in their lives. So most people are heterosexual. Most people have kids who are genetically related to them. Most people are married. But that doesn't mean everybody. And so just like AB blood might be uncommon, Mm. we need to plan for having families that are uncommon, and give them what they need, which is support and recognition. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a great point that now that it's, you know, becoming pretty much uh, accepted everywhere, except maybe in the old Confederacy. Should have let them go, but that's another story. (laughs) (laughs) That'll get you a few hits. Oh, yeah. Um, But, you know, it just, all right, we have to, you know, have some understandings and, and contracts, as you say, can be friendly. I wonder what kind of contractual agreement my my niece and her wife they were one of the first uh lesbian couples to get married in massachusetts a while ago and they each gave birth to a child through artificial insemination of course and i believe the two wonderful boys not that i'm biased have the same donor of course he's not being called their father you have a son whom you call the biggest deal in your life i can understand that how is he the result of a number of legally binding agreements? And I wonder, you know, for my niece and her wife, you know, what kind of contracts were probably there? And, and if they weren't, you know, what kind of difficulties that may portend? Right, right. And I think it is true that their people's lives take unanticipated um, directions and that that's exactly why family law is there, to help have yeah. some principled way to resolve things as they come up. Your niece's situation is far more common than mine. So my, hmm. my situation is two single gay people, man and woman, decide to have a baby because we're both law professors. We put everything in writing, have a four-page agreement. The lawyer who looks at it says, whoa, I can't believe you've really thought of everything <laughs> that could come up. Well. But I know that most people are sane. Most people aren't in that situation. And so... Um, much more common is a situation like your nieces. So if they, with alternative insemination, if they had gone to a sperm bank, they would be among the 40,000 babies that are born through alternative insemination every year in the United States. So there are an awful lot of people in that situation, and of course most of them are, are, are being born into uh, families, maybe to single mothers or to same-sex couples, like your, like your niece's family. Um, in that situation, there's still a contract. Oh, I'll bet. There's a sperm donor. The sperm donor, and I write about this in Love's Promises, where I, I pull out the language of one of the big sperm banks is called California Cryobank, and the language of the agreements that they make with their donors. And they pay their donors, and in exchange, their donors make um, 
deposits into the sperm bank for about a year, promising to do it once or twice a week, and promising to tell them if things um, change. And they take, of course, lots of tests for health and other things. Oh, sure. Then, of course, um, recipients in the position like your niece will um, get online. And if you were to, if your listeners were to just Google sperm bank, they'd probably call up the California Cryobank, and they would get a mm. roster, an inventory, where they can select somebody based right. on height and weight and race and whether they did very well in school or like playing the guitar. Um, and generally speaking, those guys, I, I talk about the difference between a donor contract, which would be that situation, uh-huh. and a dad contract, which is my situation. Now, the law treats this as 100% on or off. You're either a donor, in which case you are a complete stranger to the child that you are genetically related to. And you have no legal rights from that point on? No legal rights and no legal responsibilities. You Uh don't have to pay child support. Uh Nobody can guilt you into going to that little league game. Uh Um, but But you don't have you don't have the right to go to the Little League game either. So there's a bad contract and a donor contract. My situation, and I have the example in the appendix to the book of the agreement I, I uh, came into with, with Victor, the, my son's dad, um, and it specifically says um, we're both on the hook financially, that um, the child will both have a relationship with each other's families. And if we can't get along, we have agreements that I call jerk insurance to keep us out of court. Say, we'll go to therapy. Well, if we can't be decent human beings in therapy, if somebody's an alcoholic or becomes extremely religious and thinks it's bad to be gay, Mm -hmm. we agree to go to mediation to keep us out of court. So we've built in things that this is why I think these promises are friendly, because they are contract Mm -hmm. with our current self to protect us from a potential jerky self one of us might become. Hey, it happens. If you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Martha Ertman, author of the brand new book, Love's Promises, How Formal and Informal Contracts Shape All Kinds of Families. And, you know, as, as you talk about it, I can imagine the, the people who, you know, still insist, you know, it's, it's one man, one woman, marriage exists for procreation. It must get frightening because we're talking about you know, kind of a, a very expanded universe. But as you describe your situation, my niece's situation, yes, it's a larger universe, but it can be dealt with. As you say, there can be friendly contracts. Are... Yeah, and I think it's always been happening. Yeah, So the, the, I start each of my family law chapters with a very old example to show that these Plan B families, the families I call Plan B, the right. uncommon families, have always been existent. Always. So Charles Carrollton, think of living together. Charles Carrollton is the, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He is the first senator from the brand-new state of Maryland during the founding of our country. His parents did not get married until he was 20 years old. Huh. So he is a child of cohabiting parents. The reason his incredibly rich landowning parents uh. did not get married is they were cousins, and there was some problem Ooh. with inheritance or who owned property or this or that. But the fact is, this has been happening all along. 
So in the adoption chapter, I talk about baby Moses' laws, and that that the name of that comes from Moses in the Bible being drawn out of the weeds, raised by Pharaoh's daughter, and the birth mom actually kind of sneaks in to be the nurse, and, and I argue that that's the equivalent of an open adoption. This is ancient stuff. We are kidding ourselves if we say that there's always been this traditional family that existed. It might have been more common, but we've always had variation. What's different is we're acknowledging the variation. Uh, that's true, and you're right. They have always been there. And again, you know, the the uh, re- religious right, uh, you know, has said that, well, this has always been a man, one man, one woman. Well, that's not the case. My understanding, and I, I don't really know, I will confess, that that, that limited uh, definition of marriage has only been around like 300 years or so, which isn't really that much. Well, certainly if you look at the world, something like 85% of human cultures recognize polygamy. So if you want to hmm. talk about one man and one woman, the first thing is to look at the number, which is to say one. And 85% of the world's cultures today recognize polygamy. Wow. So that's Jeez. myth number one. The second is there are historians who have said that same-sex relationships were recognized historically in various ways. I don't think they got the label marriage, but the label marriage has been applied to a lot of different situations. So if I had gotten married to a man in the year 1800, I would not be able to enter a contract after that. My, I would be under a system that was called coverture. I would be a femme couverte or a covered woman. I would be merged with my husband's identity. I would be legally invisible. He could hmm. make a contract for me, but I couldn't make a contract for myself. Moreover, he had a right called chastisement, where he could beat me to chastise me if I, if I needed a little discipline, mm. as, and that's where the term rule of thumb comes from. I thought he couldn't so. beat me with a stick that was thicker than his thumb. Mm. So, I mean, if we're talking traditional marriage, it's been a lot of different things over time. I don't think there'd be many people who would favor going back to that. I may be wrong. I'm often surprised at people's different attitudes. Maybe the stick holders would like that. Uh, quite possibly. I don't know. I, but, you know, we, we are opening up to this, and it just seems much more uh, realistic. And your book opens up in the introduction about something you called the big whoop in contract law. What are some examples of the kinds of promises that courts enforce and the ones they won't? What is this big whoop? The big whoop. Well, the big whoop is, and this is what in my contracts classroom since it's contract law and the students are paying to go to law school, we talk about what kinds of promises will courts enforce. Will they put the immense power of the state behind? So if you don't pay your landlord rent, then your landlord can take your bed, sell it, and use it to satisfy the bed, the, the rent obligation. So that's huge. And the sheriff will do it. And the sheriff will come into your house and take the bed so they can sell it. So that's the power of the state. That's a contract, a legally binding arrangement. However, there are lots and lots of deals, the ones that I call deals, which are people, they might be against public policy, like selling your kid or selling cocaine, or it might be because it's too small, too informal. Nobody expects it to get into court, like I cook and you clean up. So the 
in family law, one of the things that courts do is they figure out once people think that they're in an agreement, is it enforceable or not? So Barry Bonds gets married to Sun Bonds. They're young, yes. they're in love, they're in Arizona, they're on the way to the airport to get married in Vegas, and they stop at um, a lawyer's office. Sun Bonds signs away her rights to all of Barry Bonds' earnings. Six years later, they're in California. He has a $43 million contract with the Giants. They have two kids, and they're not getting along. They're divorcing. The question is, does Barry get to take home all the donuts because of that agreement? It goes all the way up to the California Supreme Court. California Supreme Court says Barry gets to keep all the donuts because now Sun Bonds has what's called contractual capacity. She can enter a binding agreement. She's a big girl. She knew what she was signing. That is a contract. If instead, there's another California couple, Donna and Manuel Diostato, they're not famous, but they're famous among family law professors uh-huh. because Manuel has a fair. They're going to break up. Manuel says, take me back, take me back, take me back. Donna says, how can I trust you? He says, I'll put it in writing. If I ever cheat again and we divorce you get 50 grand off the top. She says, all right. His lawyer writes it up. They sign it. Five years, things are fine. Then Manuel goes out again. There's no question he had another affair. They get divorced. The question is, does Donna get that $50,000 off the top of dividing their property? What do you think? I would think... You would think, because you're a sentient being, (laughs) you would think. And your listeners probably would think. And I certainly thought. I read through mountains of cases, and I picked out the ones that I found outrageous to argue this is one of them, to say this is a deal. California says it's not legally binding. Uh. Barry Bonds can contract to keep all his donuts, but Manuel Diostato cannot contract to keep his hands to himself. There's something wrong with that picture. So I would say that's one of the situations that it's a deal. It's treated as not legally binding, but it should be a contract. That Donna Diostato should be able to rely on the promise her husband has made. Boy, you would think. And uh, yeah, you reminded me, I remember I was pretty young, and I saw my mother sign a check, Mrs. Martin Cohen. I'm thinking, that's not her name. Her name is Alice. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, these are the ways we, we drag our disinherited selves behind us. We still, oh. it, it is still true. Most women take their husband's names. For a while wow. in the 80s, it was less common, but now it's, really? it's much more common. Yeah, well, it's reassuring, I guess. You know, it's familiar. But uh, you cited that case, the Barry Bonds thing. And, you know, oftentimes... I'm sure this is no surprise to you. People say, ah, lawyers, bad lawyers, lawyers. But you know what? It's our uh, unpredictable behavior. It's the, sometimes, as you say, we can be jerks. That's why there's always business for lawyers to attend to. Well, or, or the flip side is, and really we do talk in contract law classes. In the classroom, I often talk about why it is that lawyers are unpopular. Because yeah. you are so right. We are the perennial... Absolutely. Annoying people. And, and uh, I think one of the reasons is, is we show up 
when something goes uh, wrong. Uh-huh. We didn't cause uh-huh. it to go wrong, right. but we show up to provide a principled way to resolve a dispute when something goes wrong. Because the fact is, Absolutely. without a principled, Absolutely. orderly way to figure out whether Donna gets that $50,000, she sends her cousin Vinny out and, <laughs> and you know, just swipes a car or breaks Manuel's kneecaps. Right. So the alternative, I think we forget, to all the talk that lawyers do and the orderliness and the formality is a kind of a um, nasty, brutish, much yes. shorter dispute. Yeah. <laughs> I think probably not re- creating as, as good an outcome. As, as annoying as lawyers are, I think we... Um, I think this is it. I'm going to say it. I think we make Western democracy possible because Absolutely. otherwise it's might-making right. Well, I had a college professor, and my regular listeners will know what I'm about to say, who defined politics as the economy of violence. And that's oh, exactly... Oh, that's interesting. Isn't that? Because that's what you're talking about, too. You know, you could have the whole uh, uh, Sopranos approach. You know, if they did something wrong, you break their kneecaps. You know, but... This is a little bit better than that, I think. You know, lawyers exist to, uh, you know, keep things without becoming violent. I mean, let's face it, you know, violence in a way settles things, but I, I prefer lawyers myself. Some Thank of my, you. Oh, I, love you. I love you. Now, I also think that the words, we are wordy people. And, oh, yeah. you know, we have, we, we have all these formal terms of art, and it's annoying. I'm, I have to say, it's annoying to me. Yeah. And this is the water I swim in. And yet, think about same-sex marriage. I've been, I've been, of course, thinking about it, as everybody else has right now, as we wait for the Supreme Court to oh, say yeah. what it's going to do in these same-sex marriage cases. And when I was growing up, as you said at the beginning, Bert, it was unthinkable. Everybody Absolutely. just assumed marriage was synonymous with heterosexual. Right. And what's happened in the last 20 years is that people have had to come up with reasons, have had to come up with words, have had to come up with logic to say why that's the best rule. And they've failed. And so it's only when we open up the conversation and show that these arguments collapse under their own weight do we get the better outcome. What I, of course, think is the better outcome. Well, yeah. I mean, I... I certainly believe in justice. I believe in fairness. I used to work at a law factory called the New Hampshire Senate where we made laws. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's always things you don't think of that, oh, yeah, I missed this. And, and that, you know, it's always refining itself and becoming more specific, I think. And it has to be that. And if you just tuned in again, uh, this is Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert Cohen here, our guest today, Martha Ertman. Her brand new book is Love's Promises, How Formal and Informal Contracts Shape All Kinds of Families. And one of the first contracts, I think, that, that a lot of people think of when they think of marriage and contracts is the notion of prenups, prenuptial agreements. Many marrying couples are extremely reluctant to sign prenups. They don't like the message that it may send to their spouse, ooh, this thing is going to break apart, I'm ready, you know, this is maybe a temporary situation, down the road a piece, we're going to break apart, and tough luck, that's the way it is. With your knowledge of family law and having written this book, what would you say to those people? Uh, you know, I think it's a, it is a 
very, very common response. If you look at who actually enters premarital agreements, they tend to be midlife marriages. Ah. First of all, it's because they've been through it before, so they (laughs) know even (laughs) the best intentions can end in divorce. So that's part of it. But then also, they may have children from a prior marriage. And they want to make sure that the rules about property merging don't apply to them. So a lot of these, as I was reading cases and researching this in this book, a lot of the co- the prenuptial agreements have to do with middle-aged people. They're marrying the second time, uh-huh. and they have kids they want to protect from previous marriages. So those are the ones where it seems like a no-brainer. And I think probably by middle age, your, your blood pressure, maybe your blood pressure is high, but you're a little less... Um, Nuts. You're a little more uh, measured, probably, in, <laughs> yes. in how you think about how relationships the theory, yeah. work. Um, but even for the young ones, I don't know if you have to go to a lawyer's office and if you have to be all formal, because, in fact, that's why family law has background rules, because most people don't want to, and maybe it's not good for everybody to think about every possible thing that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. That's what some people do, and we call them lawyers. But that does, there's a reason we're unpopular. We think about what can go wrong. But how about if you sat down and did something informal? How about if you sat down and said, and I think in many denominations, there's premarital counseling that says, well, what, how are you all thinking about uh-huh. managing finances? Are you thinking about whether you're going to have children? If you do have children, are you thinking what religion you're going to raise them? One of the deals, even if you did it very formally, is that will, a court will not enforce is to say, raise the children Lutheran or raise the children Jewish. Mm. That one can't be enforced. The courts will not force that. But I think it matters as people are building an us which is anytime you you build a big relationship, to say, oh, yeah, we agreed on that. And uh, uh, I used all the examples in the book from real life. When I read the uh, Tiger Mother book, their example of a deal was those children will be raised Jewish but learn to speak Chinese. And I think that's not a terrible thing to talk about. They're both law professors, as I'm a law professor, but I think people often make those kinds of agreements, and being thoughtful and sitting down with a glass of wine is um, actually, I think, a little friendlier than arguing later, because you just assumed the other person read your mind. Yeah, sometimes it's... You don't want to face that, but somehow making it easy, making it friendly, as you say, is is really uh, clearly important. And, you know, talk about unwritten deals. And you explained that sometimes deals like that can be upgraded to contracts. Is Is this a good thing, and why is it important to know about that possibility of upgrading a deal to a contract? Well, it, de- it kind of depends on the context. Generally speaking, in the, in the book, I take a, a retail approach instead of a wholesale. I look at particular contexts, say reproductive technology or adoption or living together. And so with the um, living together agreement, say lots of people live together, one in ten households in the entire country are living together households, and they're strangers to each other unless they have an agreement. One thing that's really common is one person owns a house, the other person, the girlfriend often, is moves in, and she makes contributions to the house. 
but she's never formally on the house. Then if they break up, she's out on her out on her keister, probably just with her with her clothes, depending on the charity, really, of this guy she's been living with for a long time. So I would say let's upgrade those implicit agreements where she is keeping the home, often caring for children either born to the marriage or that came, or the living together arrangement, or that came in um, with as they moved in. Um, one person usually tends to do the grocery shopping mm-hmm. and the laundry and do a little bit more of those. And I would say let's value that. Let's, let's um, put whatever kind uh-huh. of price we want to, if you do a Google search on how much it takes that take a taxi when they break up. You don't have to do it along. along. You mm. don't have to keep an accounting log. But when you break up, you say, okay, what would it cost to have somebody ferry your kid to soccer for five years? And you get out a calculator mm-hmm. and you, and you um, make a rough estimate, but that's better than what currently it is, where we assume it's all a gift, but the gift giver gets nothing in exchange. Yeah, well, that is a lot to think about, uh, how, you know, things you just take for granted, and, you know, there is an actual quantifiable amount of money that these things can be worth. And, you know, of course, it used to be that, you know, so simple, the man is the head of the household. That's actually the way it was when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. You know, I, I'm thinking not just in custom, but in law, as in law as well. The courts have traditionally almost always given preference to women over men when it comes to custody, unless, of course, there's abuse. It it was certainly tradition, if not actual law, that women made the better parent. And I wonder about the courts. I mean, you know, we have these judges that are human after all and have all kinds of cultural and, you know, uh, legal precedent history to deal with. Is this changing? Is this still generally the case that that women are assumed to be the better parent and and courts almost always give uh, or grant custody to the to the mother in a divorce situation that is an interesting interesting question and in fact i would just amend your um introduction to say well you're exactly right until say when we were growing up you and i in the in the 60s the tender years presumption came into play. Uh, the uh-huh. idea being young children, children of tender years, right. should be with their mother because women are better at taking care of little kids. They're better mothers. Exactly, <laughs> better at mothering. And the idea is mothering is more important when the children are, are more vulnerable uh-huh. and, and not in school, so they're at home so much more. Now, if you were to actually look back to that old-fashioned rule that, say, I was, when I mentioned if I had gotten married in 1800 mm-hmm. to a man, mm-hmm. then the presumption would be that he would have the custody if we split up. Really? It would be harder divorce in the first place. Yeah. But the presumption is if he wanted the custody, he would have it, and the idea is as a woman, I would be morally unfit to be in charge of something as important as raising a child. So we go from men being uh-huh. the ones who get custody to women being the ones who get custody. And then, as in the 70s, as we move toward the more gender neutrality, the possibility is open that either one can get custody, so primary custody Mm -hmm. of having the child live with you, or children often, as we all know, go back and forth between households with the idea that it's good for a child. The best interests of the child are supposed to be the lodestone that 
um, gives us all of these rules, that it's good for a child to have relationships with both parents, and both parents are capable of mothering and fathering. Now, Mm -hmm. that's the ideal. So scholars talk about law in the books and law in action. So you're absolutely right. We've moved away from the tender years doctrine. We've moved toward Mm. the idea that either men or women can make sandwiches, right? Um, or put on Band-Aids, or uh-huh. deal with throw-up in the middle of the night, or whatever it is that happens, or lice. I'm sure a lot of your, your viewers have had the fun of figuring out how to treat lice when the school nurse comes. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, lots of fun. But, and so that does make you wonder why anybody seeks custody, but people do. <laughs> Somebody is, you get, a, you get other things other than having to deal with think, figuring yes. out how, how to manage lice shampoo. Yes. Um, and what it is is that on the ground, what the scholars call law in action, mm. as opposed to law in the books, in mm. action, women are more likely to seek custody. Mm-hmm. And that one of the things that happens is people who study this say that when men seek custody, which is less common, they're more likely to get custody. And that sometimes men seek custody in order to have a bargaining chip to get lower transport uh, obligations or uh-huh. better property um, mm, uh, separation agreements. So yeah. it's so complicated, just as emotions and family and everybody's situation are different. Different people are making arguments in different ways. I think generally speaking, if you look at children of divorced parents in America, most of them are with the moms. But I think it's mostly because the moms are the ones who want, who have been the primary caretakers and who who want to do it. But then, of course, as, as we all know, there's a men's rights movement who oh, yeah. say uh-huh. that's super unfair and the, and the uh, um, odds are stacked against us. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about that men's rights movement having been in the legislature, but we'll deal with that another time. What about... Uh, Two moms, you know, lesbian uh, marriages, they're just as uh, capable of being broken up as well. I wonder, is that complicated or is it really not so complicated, not much more complicated in terms of if they both want uh, custody? I I don't know how much... that's so interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. So if, in fact, women, for whatever reasons, so so, uh, being socialized or genetics or whatever... um, then you have two women, they're more likely to do it. Um, they're both both wanting to have custody. What What's interesting is, as you say, same-sex couples are as likely to break up as, sure, as a different-sex couple. Um, interestingly, they're not more likely to break up. So so that we're just being able to study and compare. that The stereotype has been that gay relationships don't last. In fact, it oh, seems like sense. now that it's more formal so that we can see what happens, there is... Um, a similar longevity. Um, one thing that has happened also is that people are being able to study and say, wow, how do people divide up homemaking labor? Because if you are the one who's doing most of the sandwich making and figuring out how to treat lice, then chances are you'd be the one who'd be a custodial parent after. The, the life after the divorce should mirror what life during the marriage was mm. or for, from the child's perspective. Um, one of the things I found out in researching this book, which is hugely fascinating, is that when gay male couples or lesbian couples have kids, they are just as likely as heterosexual couples to have somebody home full-time. They share housework a little better, mm-hmm. but more evenly, but they are just as likely, about one in three or one in four, 
of um, gay parents with kids have one person at home full-time. And so if one person is at home full-time, my guess is that person who's at home full-time would be the more likely to be the one with custody, physical custody. But then there's Hmm. shared shared decision-making. So that's not... That's not the whole custody thing anymore. I think both parents are way more involved than they were when we were growing up, when when people got divorced. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And I was just thinking about how, you know, so often throughout history, marriages have been, you know, shotgun marriages. Somebody gets pregnant. Oh, better make an honest woman out of the the woman there. And that uh, I'm thinking that, you know, now that, uh, gay lesbian marriage is is much more common. You know, it, it's they're never forced into it because somebody accidentally got pregnant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is definitely not going to happen. You know, another thing I discovered in writing this book, there were so many fascinating things I, I discovered, not all of which could end up on the page. Yeah. I said earlier in this interview that throughout the 20th century, 90% of Americans had been married at some point in their life. The only exception to that is in the 1950s, when 95% of Americans had been married at some point in their life. So that was an off-the-charts time where there was a tremendous pressure to have a a family that looked like everybody else's. Not surprisingly, there are an awful lot of shotgun marriages that happen. The divorce rate, there's a big myth that divorce rates are going up. In fact, divorce rates have been steady since about 1980. And that is just about the time after those shotgun marriages of the 70s had sent their kids out of the house. Ah. So so what's the shotgun marriages of the 50s? So the shotgun marriages of the 50s, that extra 5%, which is big, the bunch of people who wouldn't have gotten married in another situation got married and the feminist movement happened and oh, yeah. all kinds of other things happened and they never were compatible to begin with and they divorced. Yeah. Yeah. But it, so yeah, I do think it is true that there it's, are it's more of a choice and a conscious there's choice. There's more choice. There's yeah. more choice and then I think where contract helps is that if you see your marriage as a contract and if you see your parenting relationship also as a sure. series of contracts and deals and, and recognize what's already there in addition to uh-huh. love, these back and forth, then when you split up, you can say, okay, our romantic part, you can take sticks out of the bundle. You can say the romantic part of our relationship is over, but the parenting part continues. And now instead of ending our relationship for a fresh start, we're modifying it. And I think that mm, people who mm-hmm. successfully figure out how to continue raising kids together after they divorce are the ones who can say, okay, now we have a parenting partnership and new rules apply, but mm. we still have a back and forth. Interesting. Yeah, contracts can be changed. As situations change, contracts change. This, this is some very shedding some light into some interesting, uh, kind of good, very positive area. And you know, there's always the concept, very important concept, in my opinion, of separation of church and state. Many marriages occur in churches or other places of, of worship. There are oftentimes religious-based traditions, and I wonder about how much weight they may or may not uh, carry uh, into our legal system. Why do courts sometimes allow religious law or custom to guide them in decisions vis-a-vis divorce in particular? And how, how does that uh, play with regard to separation of church and state? 
it's wacky. It is completely <laughs> wacky. That's a legal term, I assume. One of the amazingly surprising things that your readers will find in the book, or at least I think a lot of people find it surprising, you mentioned the religious idea of divorce. In Judaism, there right. is a marriage contract called the Ketubah that yes. many people enter, and the, the, the agreement says when you sign it, when you get married, it says that we are married under the laws of Moses and Israel. And in Judaism, there is a rabbinical tribunal that can grant a religious divorce that's called a get. But under these ancient religious rules, only the husband can ask for a get. And if he refuses to ask for a get, then the wife is what's known as a chained woman, a guna, and she can never marry else. And someone else, if she does marry someone else and has children, they'll be illegitimate, and those children yeah. can never marry somebody else who's Jewish, within Jewish law. So this gives the husband a tremendous amount of power. That means that there's not a million of these cases, but there are a handful of cases where women get divorced civilly, and they want their husbands to give them a get. The question is, does the court of Illinois have to make Mr. Goldman ask the rabbinical tribunal for a get. And what do you suppose the answer is? Yes. It is. It's surprising. Not every state says. Some state, exactly as you were sort of implying, some state courts, because remember, family law is a creature of of state law, so it's going to be different rules in different states, or can be. Um, But that in some states, um, a civil court... Illinois is one of them. A civil court will make Mr. Goldman go ask the the rabbis for a get. And the idea is that when he signed the ketubah that binds him to the laws of Moses and Israel, it's called in contract law, it's called a choice of law clause. The laws of Moses and Israel outside of that ketubah says that he's got to give her a get. And so that, that rule applies. Now, he came forward in that case and says the laws of Moses and Israel also say I can't be forced. I have to come up my own free will. Then her lawyer came forward and said, yes, but the laws of Moses and Israel also say that if you abandon me, you give up the right of dragging your feet about getting again. So ultimately, the Illinois Supreme Court said Mr. Goldman had to ask for a get in part because he abandoned his wife and Jewish law would excuse him from his right to make his own decision with that. And this is the crucial linchpin to it. They said in Judaism, marriage is a civil contract between people, and it's not about a relationship between people and God. And because it's Ah. about a civil relationship between these two spouses, the Civil Court of Illinois can enforce Ronald's promise, Ronald Goldman's promise. So that, not every state would do that, but that's how it shows up. It's a different issue in Muslim marriage contracts. Well, we're getting more Muslims these days. We, well, we are. We are. And, and what's interesting, the issue that gets litigated, if, you, if you'd like to hear about it, I'd be yeah, happy sure, to a little bit, yeah. talk a little bit about it. Um, the Muslim marriage contract. So in Jewish marriage contracts, people want to get a get. They get the divorce, the, the specific one. In Muslim marriage contracts, there's a provision called the Mahar, M-A-H-R. 
And in the mahar, it's also signed at the beginning of the marriage, the, the wife's family and the husband, the bride's family and the groom, get together and say, how much is he going to pay her if the relationship doesn't work out? It's what we in contract law would call liquidated damage clause. Like if the uh-huh. paving company sure. that's going to pave your driveway is late, they might pay $100 a day for every day they're late. It's like a sure. liquidated damage clause. So in Islam, the idea is the language says at the wedding, he gives her a symbolic gold coin the rest to be paid later. doesn't say on the page when it's going to be paid later, Uh but implicit in the background of Islamic law is that if he dies or she gets divorced, then she gets that money so she can go back to her family or otherwise rebuild her life. So the Islamic marriage contracts, the mahars, get litigated about whether she has a right to say the $10,000 that he promised. And the answer, what do you suppose the answer is there? Does she, when they split up, does she get the $10,000 that he promised in the Mahar? Yes. He does. She does. So that also is enforceable. Again, in certain circumstances, let's say he wrote down $10 million to show how much he loved his wife. That might be so high that a court wouldn't enforce it. But generally speaking, and it's not the case in every in every sure. state, right. but generally speaking, those mahar clauses are enforceable, even though it's religious. Um, the idea is that it was a special kind of premarital agreement, and people in religions have the same right to enter premarital agreements as other people. And what but it, it's it's complicated for the exact reasons you said. Well, what's fascinating to me is that you know some of the uh, fundamentalist extremists keep insisting that somehow there's a third party in this and it's God. But what you're talking about here in the Jewish and the Islam uh, at recognizing that these are laws among human beings that, you know, there's, and that to me is a huge, huge difference that the fundamentalist, the, the social right wing, uh, they don't, they they may not recognize that that humans actually have re- rights as well as responsibility. I think that's a big deal. And I want to ask, thinking along the lines of the the right wing fundamentalists, do you think that the expansion of what marriage and family those terms consist of, the expansion, will erode the institution? Or will it strengthen it? Does the institution of marriage need to be preserved? Really well. That's a separate question. Maybe we'll just get to the first one there. You know, is it going to strengthen the concept of marriage, or is it kind of becoming passe? I'm sort that of... is the sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? Yes. Um, w- what I think is that it's a key question. If let's say, and there aren't going to be that many marriages of gay people, because there aren't that many gay people. No, that's true. So there are more than 30 million cross-sex marriages, right? There are maybe 300,000 gay marriages. No, so really, we're, we're a drop in the bucket. The only way we can really change things is if gay people are like one drop of food color, that if you put a drop of food color in a bathtub, uh-huh. maybe it would change color. But if the bathtub, if, the, if, if straight marriage is changing anyway, then it's a convenient time 
to open up same-sex marriage. It's if the greater culture says, gosh, you're doing, you are like an overt symbol, what my mother would call an advertisement. You're an advertisement for what we want to do anyway. So marriage is becoming more equal as we move from a manufacturing to a service economy. Hmm. So women are playing a different role in the economy where brawn doesn't matter as much as it used to. Uh In fact, what matters is can you sit still in front of a screen for a long time? And (laughs) rightly or wrongly, more women are willing to do that. Oh, my. Interesting. So there are more women making more than have before. So there are more women who are primary wage earners in their in their homes. Therefore, who's doing the vacuuming might be switching out a little bit. Um, and whether it's a little or a lot is an interesting question. I do think that there is an evolution. Yes. Um, that as same-sex couples get married. There was a lovely article in The Atlantic a couple years ago by Liza Mundy, who used to uh, write at the Post, and who wrote a book about this big economic change of women making more money over time, um, is that uh, arguing that because gay people generally are more equal, they share chores a little more equally, um, they're, they make more equivalent salaries, than, than a heterosexual couples, sure. generally speaking, that she argued that same-sex marriage will make heterosexual marriage more equal. And uh-huh. that if you like that, uh-huh. then that would that would be a good <laughs> thing. I would also say it seems like gay people are really cheerful about getting married. True. For heterosexuals, it's kind of passe. They could be a little cynical. <laughs> um, but for gay people, I'll just speak for myself, and I have this in the memoir part of the book, it is immensely moving to go from having a relationship where the only thing you could do is have a contract and make a will and powers of attorney to being, and, and then you refer to each other's families in scare quotes as in-laws, or we joke, we'd say, they're my outlaws. And then I got married, and I found out what it feels like to introduce my brother-in-law without scare quotes. Yeah. And it is so powerful, and it happens when the plumber comes to visit and fix the water heater, and I can say, "Ugh, my wife is the one who makes those decisions." Right. I don't have to explain, and right. and I don't have to apologize in any way. So, for me, I am just you know doing the Snoopy happy dance about <laughs> marriage, and and I think a lot of gay people are, and and I think it might remind some straight people of of. How, how, what an incredible gift connection is and usness and legitimacy is. Well, that's, I always like to end on a high note. That's a really great high note. The book, fascinating book, a lot more to it. Love's Promises, How Formal and Informal Contracts Shape All Kinds of Families. Our guest today was the author, Martha Ertman. Thanks so much for being with us. A lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Go into the chapel and we're gone.